The Askell Business Brunch. Hello and welcome to the Business Brunch podcast. My name is Hayley Dunn and I'm Askell's Business Leadership Specialist. I'm Louise Hatswell and I'm Askell's Conditions of Employment Specialist. And I'm Julia Harnden and I'm Askell's Funding Specialist. So a warm welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time or who've joined us after listening to one of our previous episodes. And we've got a couple of really interesting topics to talk to you about today. And the first that we're going to start with, um, and I'm going to talk to Julia first. Uh, And the reason for that is that we've recently been working together, writing about some of the changes to resource analysis. So looking in particular at the Department for Education's Better Financial Reporting Programme projects. And it seems to me now that most people are aware of ICFP and have some understanding of the metrics. But being somebody who's been involved in training and consultancy work with ICFP for a number of years, what are your reflections now, Julia, on how it's being used and how effective it is? Thanks very much, Hayley. Um, Yes, I have been involved in ICFP uh, for a number of years, uh, but I think a lot of people have, actually. I think what we've managed to do in the last few years is uh, pin down um, a common language around what uh, integrated curriculum financial planning is, uh, which is a, you know, a, a consistent approach to strategic financial planning, where the focus should be very clearly on context of your school and utilising all available revenue income to get as much money as possible targeted at the classroom. So that's spending money on, on delivering the curriculum. Um, and a curriculum that meets all the needs of all of the pupils uh, or children and young people in your setting. So it's great that we've got to that stage now. I think we've come on a long way. Um, uh, But I also think it's probably time that we go back to basics, revisit the basic principles, because that phrase, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, I think is is probably relevant here. Um, Because I think where where there's a risk is that we start to see ICFP um, as, as a, an approach that's slightly too prescriptive um, and in that we're targeting those metrics that people are familiar with now, we're targeting certain values of those metrics rather than looking at this as an approach to assess uh, affordability, so the affordability of the curriculum at the way that we want to deliver it now um, and how sustainable is that and therefore building financial resilience and it's those two things, sustainability and financial resilience, that should be um, at, at the heart of this and not chasing specific values and the reason that I, I think you know we're, we're at that point now is that I'm beginning to hear one or two conversations about people suggesting that ICFP um, is becoming seen as an approach that acts as a disincentive to inclusion and quite frankly that is wrong it absolutely is not the case it's the case it is the case that uh, if you look at all of the income you've got available to you and all of the children and young people in your cohort, what is it that you need to do to best meet their needs? And the finance aspect of it is a function of that strategic approach and not the driver of it. So that, you know, I'm really pleased that we're seeing lots more people using it and understanding the language of it. Um, But I just think we've got to check um, that emerging issue of of this as being seen as an approach that acts as a disincentive because that is absolutely not the case and we need to make sure that that message um, is very clear. It's about 
uh, meeting the needs of all your pupils. I think it's one of those things, Julia. I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of listening to you and um, your colleague Sam Ellis, um, who, who's also a, a big authority on ICFP, talk about this a number of times. And the one thing that I always take away and I always have my, in my head when I'm thinking about ICFP is that context is absolutely vital, important. Whatever analysis that you're doing, come back to what is your context, like what's the dem demographic of your, your school, and, and thinking about this as a, a rounded approach. And, and I think another thing that I took away is just how important that it isn't that it's, say, the timetable are doing this in isolation, that it's um, it's part of a leadership conversation, that you've got the, the finance person and you've got the curriculum person working closely together to understand the needs of the pupils, to understand the needs of the curriculum, the breadth of the curriculum, and sort of the vision and the values for where the, the school or the trust is going as well. Because I think one of the things that I saw you um, present on recently was about how you can use this in trusts as well, that this isn't just for schools. And I think also some exciting developments for how this may be used for special schools in the future as well. And I think inclusion is such a vital, important part of that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right, and I'm very glad you mentioned Sam uh, there because Sam Ellis. I mean, he he had has been using uh, this as an approach when he was in schools sort of decades ago, um, and has developed a lot of the resources that ASCO use, and a lot of the resources that are available on DFE website as well. So there's lots of help out there, um, free to use, uh, and I would, you know advise anyone that's new to this to start by going to DfE and looking at the DfE website gov.uk and looking at the ICFP resources and reading about it to get a proper understanding of what this is about context is everything as you quite rightly say um and and language and and the points that you make there very well Hayley about you know these these conversations that go on between curriculum leads and finance leads we're able to do that because we've got uh, to this stage of a common language so context and common language neither of those are about numbers or money but they're absolutely essential to this as an approach I completely agree there Julia and um, as you know I've recently become a, a governor at a, at a primary school a maintained primary school and I've recent ta recently taken over as the chair of the finance and resource committee so recently I've been working on the school's financial value standard that maintained schools have to fill in each year and uh, the, the ICFP now has become an integral part of that. So we're seeing it not just as an approach within within the education sector, but also as a policy line as well from the from the government, because um, I, I feel fortunate that I've had that experience and that exposure to ICFP to understand um, elements of the metrics and what it's telling us. But it's one of those things that isn't necessarily um, that governors are going to have that experience. I think definitely those within schools and trusts who are, who are working in finance or curriculum are going to understand it. But part of that language now and part of that development, I think, is us as, as um, those in, being school leaders is helping to develop that language and that understanding so that you don't um, don't make rash decisions or um read something into it that, that isn't there because it is a set of metrics and it can be um, interpreted in, in different ways. Mm, absolutely right and you know don't don't be fearful of, uh, of this as a process and don't ever complicate it it isn't a complicated process it is you know it, at its at the highest level it's about taking um, account of all of the available revenue uh, that you have what can you do with that in terms of um, delivering a sustainable curriculum 
and providing um, you know, safe, uh, safe buildings, sufficient um, uh, support staff, um, sufficient I, uh, IT and curriculum resources. Just really break it down. To, and if say if, you, if if people care to, to look at the um, the a lot of the advice that's out there, free to use. Um, it, it's it's there to it so don't be fearful of it and don't overcomplicate it and I think there's some really interesting developments as part of that DFE program that we're, we're staying closely aligned with uh, and if listeners do want to know more about this we're, we're doing a leader article for the summer edition where we're going to be looking at a couple of other elements of the program so we're going to be looking at the uh, view my financial insight tool and we're also going to be looking at the alignment of the chart of accounts and the automation processes so talking about those in a little bit more more detail for, for, for anybody that's interested in that. So moving on to a different topic, um, Julia and Louise, a message we heard at our school's annual conference from both the Secretary of State and the school's commissioners is the focus on families of schools. But, but what do you think that means in practice? And, and are there any sort of unintended consequences that we should be thinking about? Um, I, I think uh, having, having worked in... Um, Catholic schools previously, you know, that families of schools was quite a big thing for um, Catholic volunteered and um, voluntary academies as well. Um, and I, I think it's about um, just having that it's the schools that you've already got or you're looking to work with that you've already got that relationship with. And that can be either formally or informally. And lots of schools now have become academies and moved into multi-academy trusts but there are other options so I think it's just about looking at those arrangements that you've already got you know where collaborations working really well uh, but if you're not doing something like that starting to look at where where those opportunities arise and which um, you know whether it's locally schools there's actually opportunity now as we've seen over the last 12-14 months to actually collaborate with uh, other schools nationally you know the, the distance really is not the kind of same barrier that it was before so where, where you can collaborate you know across the country rather than just within your local authority or uh, immediate area so I think it, it's about looking at where the opportunities are and how they can be arranged and um, you know what what kind of um, whether you want a formal arrangement if you are looking at moving into a trust are you are you looking at joining a trust or setting up a trust or are you just looking at actually something that you can work together to get benefits and share good practice and things like that so i think it's just looking at which suits you better at the, at the particular moment in time um and and looking into that in more detail yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said there, Louise. I think for me, that, that phrase, families of schools, I think, again, it's something that can be interpreted in different ways. And I think it, it, the way I've looked at it is, is two, uh, two quite, quite simple ways of looking at it. There's a very innocent way of looking at families of schools, which is literally talking about collaboration, making uh, you know decisions that are very child-centred and are based around all of the children and young people in that family. And then there's probably what you might call a more realistic interpretation, which uh, probably means we need to start think about, thinking about the implications of more formal arrangements of, of groups of schools working together. Um, and I think, I think the sector needs to be concerning itself uh, with those types of options even if it's something that they don't think is right for them at this time <clears throat> excuse me because I think it does take time to get to an agreement to get to an arrangement that's going to work properly for you and I don't know what your experience was with that but I've not had that experience but this is what I imagine um, I think it does take time 
Um, and I think all leaders need to be conscious that, you know, if depending on, on policy from the centre, you never want to be put in a position where you feel, and I use, you know, the phrase done to, do you? You want to be in control, which is why I think we all need to be thinking about this now, even if it's something that we don't want to rush into or may never do, um, but at least be able to hold a conversation, think about the implications of things like um, centralisation. And I think the starting point for any of those conversations is being very clear about what your organisational culture is, um, a level of transparency and understanding how well that organisational culture is embedded in your school. So it's very clear for everyone to understand, um, you know, how they feel about levels of responsibility, about all the children uh, or everyone's responsibility or whether, you know, my responsibility is the children in my school now. So I, th I think they're the sorts of things that I would... I would want be wanting to talk about even if you know if, if I was in a a situation where we we weren't in a group or we weren't collaborating yet. I think you're right, Julia, and I think looking at how you overcome some of those those barriers, um, looking at how you do effectively work together, looking at the frameworks, how you make decisions, how you delegate, all of those elements are so essential. And I think one of the things that I'm concerned about is that we know, not to get political, but we know that the um, Conservative Manifesto commitment was for uh, more academies. So when they talk about um, families of schools, that's definitely got to be a strong part of the policy thinking. Um, now, I, I would hope from the steers that, that we've given and the representation that our school's given is that it's going to be done, these sort of things will be done in a more, much more thoughtful way and it won't be through a forced academisation. I, 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 would, I would hope that um, lessons have been learned from some of the pre previous decision making to, to do this in, um, in a way of working with the sector rather than um, enforcing it on the sector. But I think one of the things that I'm concerned about is the, is the, is the pace of growth. And one of the analogies that, that I like to use is there's um, a fantastic book called The Virgin Banker written by um, Jane Ann Gadia, who was part of the Virgin Group. And she talks about the, um, the RBS downfall. And she talks about things like that they, grow, they grew too big, too fast and management lost control. Um, the growth was built on a foundation of sand, so there wasn't enough capital to, to, to support the infrastructure. A lack of diversity at the top of the organisation and an unhealthy environment. So I think those four elements, I can see some synergies with thinking about how we grow and develop the, the sector within education to do it in a, in a safe way. And I'm not, I'm not particularly for or against academisation. Uh, but I'm very pro supporting schools that need support, those that perhaps have financial difficulties, those that are struggling to recruit um, the teachers that they need to develop the subjects, those that um, are trying to develop their professional development side to develop their staff. Because what I don't think that um, particularly the academisation agenda is going to... Um, facilitate or to sort is for example um, schools who are on the coast who really struggle to retain particular subject teachers or um, schools in really heavily deprived areas where they struggle to recruit because people aren't sure that they they can teach in that type of environment it's not going to address some of the safeguarding concerns that that we've seen emerging so I think 
in how we do it. It's got to be done in a really safe way, but not think that it's going to fix everything within education. Because there's, I mean, Julia, you know from your work that there's fundamental issues with funding. And Louise, you know from your work that there's fundamental issues issues with recruitment and retention and some of the work that streams that those those things that we're doing so I think I just want to see growth and development in a really safe way and I've seen collaboration work really well uh, we worked um, in the area that I was as a cluster of schools so whether that was doing sports events together whether it was sharing curriculum resources or whether it was us as a group of business leaders working together on certain projects it, it was fantastic. It brought some wonderful positives and some developments and, and really helped the, the children and young people that we were there to serve. But I think as we formalise these things, it's got to be done in a really safe, proactive way so that, and, and I think one of the biggest things to get over is recognising that you're moving from being a single organisation into a group of an organisation. And I think sometimes that can feel quite scary um, and having having worked in those type of organisations, there's there's a lot that we can do as leaders and how we set these frameworks up to help everybody on that on that journey. Mm, I completely agree. And I, and I think I think those that choose not to engage in, in, in at least in the thinking um, of, of these ideas around what families of schools might mean, um, even even at the margins, you know, just <clears throat> literally having conversations at leadership um, level. I think they're they're the, the the schools that are going to be at the biggest risk, um, potentially of being you know forced into some sort of collaboration, um, or, or you know having to go down a route that everyone is not you know everyone isn't um, engaged and everyone hasn't got buy-in, and, and that's going to be so important. So yeah, I, I think for the reasons that, that you explained, the pace of change um, is is hugely important, isn't it? I agree. And, and I think also thinking about how it's interacting with um, other policies as well. We, we've been in a bit of a season of consultations. Um, I know I've been working working on a couple recently and I know, I know you've been working on some. Thinking about, um, you were talking at the start, Julia, about inclusion. Do you, do you have any thoughts on how this might impact on the SEND review? Um, so the SEND review has been delayed um, several times, I think, for a variety of reasons. Um, but we are expecting uh, to hear some, um, to, to have some output from that uh, soon, I think, in the, in the summer term. And that will most likely be a green paper. So there'll be a consultation on, on a set of proposals around the review. But I think if, as we've already discussed, government focus is on families of schools, we can reasonably expect proposals that come out of the SEND review to reflect that. Um, quite how, of course, we, we don't know at, at, at the moment. Um, but... I think we also need to be mindful that um, probably nearly two years ago now, some colleagues will remember, there was a consultation about how mainstream schools utilise their notional SEN money, so this first 6,000 of support that, that you are required to provide. Um, and we haven't had the outcome of that consultation yet. Um, so we can expect that that will input into the SEND review. Um, and possibly uh, reflect the idea of families of schools, it, you know, how, how are schools going to best provide uh, for pupils with SEND? Uh, are there going to be some, um, some proposals around you know, groups of schools working together? We, we don't know, but I think it's sensible to assume um, that, that it will reflect that policy line. 
And I think it's one of those things, Julia, obviously, um, with when it comes to consultations, uh, we work on those and we also work with our council, ASCO council members to develop our thinking and to develop our responses. But I also think it's really important that if it's something that you and your school or your, you and your trust feel really passionate about, that actually think about putting a consultation response in yourself. How is how are these proposals going to affect in your local area or, or your the, the, the reach of your, your organisation? Because putting your points across is really important because the more people who are saying similar things it will start to to um, develop the thinking that actually perhaps a proposal if they're hearing it from a number of different places from representative bodies like ourselves but also from individual schools or groups of schools that it can start to shape the policy as well because the worst thing we can do if we've got a really strong feeling on something is not to share that and not to say that yeah absolutely and, and also I think try and link uh, policy lines together in your consultation. So we've talked about um, uh, curriculum-led planning. We've talked about um, the concerns around, um, you know, being a, a disincentive to inclusivity. So if you're looking at, at, at responding to that consultation, government are very keen that all schools apply the principles of curriculum-led planning approach. Uh, so demonstrate, you know, what the impact of uh, your concerns um, by by reflecting it in terms of you know an ICFP approach. What is what is um, the sustainability opportunity of delivering necessary um, support to that group of pupils within the bounds of the budget that you are given, um, and the ICFP metrics that everybody is now aware of, and link those together. It's it's sort of. Um, I think that's really important. I think that's really good advice and that's what we tend to do when we're, we're sort of forming our policy responses is often to, to talk to each other on, on policy responses, that were, consultation responses that we might be working on as to how is this working within your area because all, each of us as specialists look after a specific area and very often we find that some of these policies start to interlink and we can start to see some of the things that connect them together so that we can provide as, as broad and balanced response on behalf as members as we possibly can. So just thinking before we, we wrap up, what would your advice be to, to school leaders and particularly to business leaders in thinking about families of schools, thinking about the future? What would, what would be your advice to them? I think I would say um, the more thinking that you can do now, the better the structure or the uh, arrangements that you put in place. Um, it's easy to get wrapped up, speaking about the formal academy side, it's easy to get wrapped up in the actual formal process because it's quite, you know, it's quite a technical process with all the legal terminology and all the process that you need to go through. And it's easy to get to focus on that and actually think of then once you do become that, uh, you know, that, that uh, academy or join that trust, actually then what is that going to mean because once that all that work's done although it takes up an awful lot of your time what is that going to mean you know so it's the more thinking and discussing that you can do and planning beforehand um you know things like looking at what policies are if you if you're joining or working with a an organization that's got a, a, you know as julia mentioned earlier that culture if you've got very similar cultures a lot of those things will align quite nicely just because you you're working from the same kind of principles if you've got two that are quite different, that's going to mean some quite, you know, if you've got two sets of policies that you then will become one set of policies, how are you going to align those? So start thinking about those consequences that may come from that, um, you know, but just really the, the more that you can do and just I suppose like scenario planning, if we did this, you know, with this school, what would this look like? What would the, you can do it for financial, you can do it on your staffing, you know, um, what opportunities would this give us for staffing? Because it does give you those opportunities to employ 
staff in more uh, creative ways. Uh, myself, I was employed by three main tentacles, but to work one role across those, you don't need that formal structure to be able to do that. But, you, you know, if you are going to start working with somebody, start thinking about the benefits that you can get for things like that, but then how that would work in practice and how you would, you know, you need to get your governing bodies to be agreeing those sort of things. So I think the more planning and and things that you can look at in advance, the better the setup will be from from day one because suddenly you know as we know from as business leaders perspective the changes that come about from the financial uh changes from being an academy are massive and that's quite a shift change from being in a maintained school if you then have to start thinking if that's the same person that's in charge of hr and all those other things then you've got to start looking at all those policies and recruitment and everything else that's actually a massive challenge to to take on all at once so the more you can think about and plan in advance I think the better the structure however it is formal or informal the better the arrangements will be yeah yes brilliant advice I think the only thing I could add to that is is that you know perhaps start by acknowledging um, examples of collaboration that are already working really well that you make because I think there's a, we've talked about you know the fe- this fear sometimes that, that sometimes exists start by pointing out where collaboration is all, already working really well between you know a group of schools um, and, and build on that um, and, and don't be you know fear change management is a is a whole science all on its own isn't it so make sure that you're you've you've got staff that understand how to uh, to manage a project that's going to involve um, significant change. It may be that, you know, that there's some little bit of, of training required there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think I have nothing else to add to what Louisa said. No, that's, I think that's a great advice from both of you. I think I would just have, having made that transition from uh, maintain to uh, academy to, to see what it's like, completely agree with Louise's thoughts on um, aligning policies and how different the uh, the finance side of it is and perhaps to talk to people who are interested now and um, what it's like for them what their, their role is like because a bit like how, how a role is in a maintained school for a business leader and it's it's different in lots of different contexts it's exactly the same in different academy trusts because we see that um, academies and federations have different structures some of them will have uh, more on-site support, others will have gone for a more centralised or a regional hub approach. So very different in their thinking. And if you're one of those business leaders that's on a developing career journey, it's also there's some wonderful opportunities out there as well for um, going along the steps and, and having um, opportunities to, to take new roles that, that may be more focused on one particular area that you, you may uh, enjoy more. So it might be HR or marketing infrastructure up to those sorts of roles where we see people being chief operating officers and chief financial officers. And and if you haven't come across it, definitely have a look at the Academy's Financial Handbook if you're interested in the CFO type of role, because that explains some of the uh, statutory and compliance side. Um, but I think don't be fearful of that, because if you, if you do look at some of the policy lines from the, the last couple of years, particularly on finance, so I talked earlier about the SFES that the maintained schools do. If you now look at what's called the, the catchy SRMSAT, so the school's resource management self-assessment tool, 
they're very similar. Now, if you look at the data side of it, it's pretty much exactly the same. It's more the, um, the narrative around it that's different. So some of these policies are already to, starting to align. So if you've got experience of that, it may not be that big of a step than you're thinking. And when you're on that journey, you're not on your own as well. If you're, if you're an ASCOL member, um, then we've got papers and guidance that, that can support you. And definitely a plug here for our Business Leaders Conference. Our annual Business Leaders Conference is happening in June. And we'll be talking about topics that are, that are suitable for uh, people working in all different types of schools. But we'll definitely have stuff in there for people who are developing their career. And just to think about some of the opportunities as well and for thinking about not just what it means for your organisation, but what does it mean for you personally as a business leader? Where do you want to go? What job do you want to have in the future? And what are you aspiring to? Because being a business leader is such a fantastic um, career. And it's the, 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 the glass ceiling for me, I feel, is broken, um, that, that you can go on to do any sort of role that you want. There's some fantastic um, executive generalist um, roles, whatever you want to do out there. So so uh, have a think about that and um, set the direction for yourself because I think it's a really exciting time to, to be a business leader. And as uh, Louise said um, and Julia said earlier, is don't have these things done to you, is be prepared and do the research and, and have your own thinking on this so you know exactly where you want to go. So anything else from either of you before we wrap up today? Not from me, Hayley, thank you. No, not from me, Hayley, either, thanks. Oh, it's fantastic to be joined by both of you today and thank you to all our listeners and we'll be back soon with another episode of The Business Brunch. Have a great day. The Askell Business Brunch.